Thanks so much. Uh, thank you all for, for coming out. Um, at the end of this uh, program, we will ask you all to caucus. Um, <laughs> and we will see whether your caucusing matches that of the, the good people of Iowa. Um, no, what I want to uh, stay st uh, starting out is just it's such a pleasure to do this. I'm, I've admired Michael for a long time. And I've admired him not just because of his writing, but because even when being, while being president of Wesleyan, he continues to do that, which is something that I think uh, is a kind of lost art in, in American society and civic and political culture. There was a time when university presidents saw themselves as having an important role in uh, engaging the, 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 the culture, the, engaging with civic issues, uh, talking about them. Uh, and some, somewhere along the line, they became fundraisers and administrators and forgot that they had this, in some ways, higher calling that was very important. And I think it's, very, it's, it's so refreshing to see in Michael somebody who is managing somehow to f fundraise and administer. I was going to say, that's <laughs> also very important. <laughs> but, but at the same time, continue to do you know, this, this, I think, essential uh, function, particularly in a society in which you don't have as many kind of gatekeepers and people whom you can look up to and uh, you know and and hope that they're fair-minded and giving you some sense of uh, of guidance. So, having said all that, let me let me start by saying, it seems to me that the the image that so many people have of um, of what is wrong with America today, and I'm thinking now, obviously, of the political. Uh, um, realm and of Donald Trump and the way in which he describes it is political correctness run amok, right? I mean, if you remember the 2016 campaign, one of the things that Trump railed against was political correctness. And we're not going to be politically correct here. We're not going to, and he still does it. If you l watch his rallies, it's, a, it's a clearly a very powerful galvanizing force in America, this idea that, you know, we've gotten too politically correct. And at the heart of it is the feeling that America's college campuses have gotten too politically correct and that this is where all this stuff is incubating. And at the heart of that is that Wesleyan is at the heart of the political... <laughs> we did so, invent this. So tell me what you think of, of that whole mood. Why is it happening? Um, how, you know, from your point of view, what is, wh what is it, why is it happening, and where does... Uh, where do colleges like Wesleyan fit in? Thank you. That's a, it's a great question. And thank you for making time to have this conversation tonight. So, uh, the, the idea of political correctness fascinates me. Uh, and and uh, the second uh, chapter of Safe Enough Spaces, which I believe will be for sale out in the um, uh, Hall of Mirrors, as they say. So you be careful with your credit cards in the Hall of Mirrors. Um, uh, after we're done here, we assign some books. In the second section of Safe Enough Spaces, I trace the, the history of the idea of political correctness, which, as you know, uh, in the uh, period between the two world wars, was used without irony to describe uh, uh, people who were trying to make their theories cohere with their actions in the world, uh, which is not unreasonable. You want um, actually to act in a way that's in accord with the ideas you say you have. And so that, that notion of political correctness, especially among Marxists and communists, was very strong. By the late 60s, um, it, it comes under attack because nobody really wants to conform to much of anything. And so if you're a lefty in the late 60s, 
um, you don't really want your ideas and your theories to conform to your uh, spontaneous outbursts of revulsion at late capitalism, let's say. Um, you, it's, it's a more, uh, it's, a, it's a freer uh, and, and less conf conformist uh, perspective. And so I trace this idea through feminism and, and debates within feminism. But in the, in the um, uh, late 80s, uh, there's a template for talking about conformism on campus that really just catches hold in the United States. And Alan Bloom is the guy who really nails it. He doesn't use the words political correctness uh, in the closing of The American Mind, which I think is 1987. Uh, but it's a best-selling book, and his argument there is that all this tolerance, it's really intolerance. All you people who are being asked to be more polite, to being less publicly racist, less publicly anti-Semitic, less publicly whatever, uh, you can be defend yourself by saying your demand that I be more tolerant is a form of intolerance. So Bloom makes that argument. It's 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 not just convoluted. It's 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 detailed, and there's some philosophy involved. Uh, by the 90s, this seems like a great way of deflecting attention from anything you someone told you you did was wrong. Anytime, like what we we ask our daughter to come for dinner. You know, we're having dinner, it's time for dinner. She says, don't be so politically correct. Everybody's, you know, you can say it for anything. You're, you have an exam next week, don't be politically correct. Uh, Donald Trump is asked by Megyn Kelly why he used such abusive language against women in the primaries. And, and you know, his answer is political correctness is killing our country. But Donald Trump is not the only one. The first President Bush gave a, a speech against political correctness. Bill Clinton gave speeches against political correctness. The second President Bush gave a speeches. And even President Obama gave a, a talks against political correctness, which indicates to me that this is a vacuous label, that it's just a label you put on people who are asking you to change your behavior, and a behavior you don't really want to change. And I find it... Um, I, I try to be agnostic about about this uh, history in the in the book, but I find it fascinating that for some people they think oh, it's perfectly reasonable not to use the N word uh, in public. Um, that's perfectly reasonable now. When I was a kid growing up in Long Island, not so far from here, the fact that my mother didn't like the use of the N word was seen by my friends as insane. It was probably they thought it was a Jewish thing. It was supposed to be a joke. I thought it's like, um, uh, and 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 so, but now, of course, that's not politically correct. That's just normal. Uh, you, you, using uh, a nasty language to talk about gay people was just the way we talked when I was in college. But just the other day, I was doing a book talk in Madison, where a person like me probably couldn't have done a book talk when uh, 30 years ago. I was a Jew, in case you were wondering. Um, um, uh, and, and just before I went down, uh, an older professor, retired professor, came to see me. He said, oh, I like your work, blah, 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 blah. Wink, wink. Are you going to tell him your pronouns? So for him, all this other stuff, you shouldn't use the N-word. You shouldn't use the K-word. You shouldn't, you, you shouldn't use he for men and women. All those things are now accepted. But he thinks, well, but pronouns? So I, I don't know if there is no last station on this voyage, right? I mean, there's, it's going to keep going. But I think instead of having a, a conversation with students or faculty about what's at stake here, if I, mis if I make a mistake, can I, can I just correct it? 
uh, how, how do we get along better? What kind of language do you want me to use about you if you use the language I want you to use about me? Those kinds of conversations I think are really important. But the label political correctness has really just become a way of deflecting attention from behavior that you can't really defend. Um, and, and so you know, I wrote this, uh, this book because I felt that many commentators on higher education, some of whom I think are really smart and they're very thoughtful about many issues, they have fallen into this habit of criticizing college campuses as being uh, bastions of intolerance um, uh, with, in ways that uh, seem to me not accurate to my experience of being a teacher and a president at a university. So let me push back. Um, what you describe is fair enough, but I think that the argument that would be made by, uh, by critics of political correctness is sort of twofold. One, that if you look on college campuses today, first of all, you have an overwhelmingly dominant uh, liberal culture, essentially a monoculture politically, that there is almost no conservative life, there are almost no conservative groups, clubs, um, and that not only is it, you know, if you look, take a look at the, at the voting records of most major, certainly Northeastern universities, it's sort of like in 2016, people, it was 95 Hillary, 5% uh, Trump, or probably 5%, you know, uh, Jeb Bush or something like that, no, no, not, not even Trump. And that as a result of that, what you have created is a culture of intolerance toward even hearing what the other side wants to say. And as you know, there are a whole series of very, very famous cases where people were shouted down or not even uh, invited or disinvited. And that that speaks to a larger point, and this is point number two, which is there is, begun, there is now an assumption that there is a monopoly of virtue on one side of the, de of the debate. That it's not just that you can't, you know, that, you, that, that you're conservative on, on some issue, let's say you want to cut welfare but it must mean you're evil. You don't like poor people. That, you know, that it's impossible to have a conversation on uh, political issues where you disagree with somebody where you're not assuming that the other person is somehow morally inferior and that this self-righteousness is what allows you to say, I don't need to hear from you. And I, I have honestly heard this on college campuses where we don't need to hear, we don't need to hear somebody explaining you know, why racism is good, as if that is the argument being made when you say you support Donald Trump or whatever it is. And that strikes me as A, anti-intellectual, um, and B, you know, 63 million people did vote for Donald Trump. And so you're in a sense saying that you don't want to hear what those people have to say. So I, I think there are two things there. Uh, there's, there's one, uh, aspect which I think is really important is that we don't have enough intellectual diversity on college and university campuses. I mean, I, I think that um, the, the, and I have at Wesleyan uh, called for an affirmative action program for conservatives, um, which annoyed everyone because uh, the, my, my friends who, uh, supporters of affirmative action, who actually don't like to talk about affirmative action, even if they're supportive, um, uh, they, th some have said, you sullied the words affirmative action by putting them in proximity to the word conservative. Um, and then the conservatives said, we don't need affirmative action. We have better ideas. All we need is freedom. Um, and and um, I, I do think uh, university presidents and, and faculty have a responsibility to curate intellectual diversity, to cultivate 
uh, a campus where a variety of ideas um, uh, can be encountered. Not all ideas. I mean, I do think it's not worth debating uh, with people whose uh, primary objective is to intimidate or to harass other people. I don't think I mean, you don't you don't have that in biology. You don't have to debate every. You don't have the, the flat air society doesn't have to be represented in the uh, in the uh, geography department. Um, but there is a we do need a, I, I believe uh, a lot more intellectual diversity on college campuses. However, <laughs> I think I have read so many times by very smart people in very prominent places that they're silenced. They're, and, and they say it again and again. I'm silenced. I'm silenced. I'm silenced. And it seems to me they. I, sometimes I wish they were silenced, but they're not. They're speaking up. Conservatives are speaking up on college campuses. And and what I think what happens more often is a, a liberal, someone who would have been a liberal, let's say in 1988, uh, speaks up on a college campus, and somebody says, you know what you just said actually offends me, or it's racist, or something. And that doesn't feel good to feel yourself outflanked uh, when you hit a certain age and you thought you were liberal, progressive in the old school sense of that word, and suddenly you feel yourself outflanked by a student who thinks you're part of the bourgeois hegemonic system that whose power structures are keeping people from freedom. I wanted to say that even faster. But, um, uh, and it feels bad, and so the critique is not that I should debate these ideas, but I am actually being silenced. And I, I think that we do need more debate on campuses, but in my experience, uh, uh, professors can very uh, 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 easily, maybe overstated, but the job of a professor, the job of a teacher in a humanities and social science class is to create the conditions for authentic debate. And that happens all the time. Now, once in a while, somebody on a lecture tour like Charles Murray, who is probably speaking, I don't know, at dozens of schools in a given year, gets shouted down at, his pl at a place. And that, I think that's bad, actually. But there are dozens of other times when he gives the talk and he has an, either a vigorous debate or nobody shows up or wh whatever, a normal course of events. And I think this happens every day on lots of college campuses. Uh, I, I teach a course at Wesleyan uh, called Virtue and Vice in Literature, History, and Philosophy. We start with Confucius and we end with Spike Lee. And I asked the students to wrestle with Aquinas and with, in the following week with Machiavelli, with Jane Austen, and then with Baudelaire, uh, with contemporary race theory, but also with Aristotle. And the students, some their initial reaction is, wasn't Aristotle, didn't Aristotle defend slavery? And I say, yes, let's go back to the text. And they go back to the text. So I don't think it's, I don't think um, the monoculture is that strongly mono. I think that um, it is, it's incumbent upon us as, as professors and teachers not to complain about student culture, but to change student culture. That's always been the task of teachers. And I worry that when you have publication after publication by people who are teachers or administrators complaining about students, I, it seems to me they should actually find another line of work. They should become journalists, let's say. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because it seems to me they just, it, I, I, I think they, they just don't, they don't like young people today. They don't like their culture. Alan Bloom, you know, he just didn't like the way they dressed. They didn't like the music. They were a little older than the like, younger people. And, 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 and so if you don't like young people, you probably shouldn't be a teacher. 
But if you think young people are always right and everything they say is gold, you also shouldn't be a teacher, right? Because there's nothing to teach them. My experience, uh, and I, you know, I was talking to Straussians in Michigan last week. I talked to the, the, the lefties in Wesleyan this morning and everyone in between. It, yeah, well, I, you know, I, 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 but this, this morning, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm teaching a course uh, uh, this semester on the modern and the postmodern, and uh, we're reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And they're perfectly able to take a variety of perspectives on the text. My job as an administrator is to make sure the faculty is uh, helping them take multiple perspectives on texts and issues, uh, not because they voted for the Democrats or voted for whomever, but because as teachers, they're capable of actually teaching things even if they disagree with those things. I mean, I teach Aquinas as a Long Island Jewish kid. I tell them, you know, if anybody thinks I screwed up, anybody, you know, please raise your hands. It's not because I'm Catholic, but I teach Aquinas. I think Aquinas is the most important thing in their world that week. I want it to be. And they seem to like that, actually. So all of which is to say, you, I agree with you that intellectual diversity should be our goal. But you don't get intellectual diversity by complaining about monoculture. You get intellectual diversity by teaching students to think from a variety of perspectives. But, but what about the, uh, the argument about, you know, the, the virtuecrats, as it were, the idea, and this was, th this was part of Bloom's book, that, you know, it's become, it, it's, you, you, it, this is an anti-intellectual critique because it says, I don't need to actually engage with your ideas because you're just evil. You don't like, you, you don't like poor people or you're racist. It's, it's a way of not actually having a debate. It Which I notice yeah, yeah. in our political you know, debate, it's when, when people talk about you know, some idea that Trump may have, they don't feel like you don't need to explain it. If Trump is for it, it's obviously evil. Yeah. Right. Th I, I, this is a problem. This is not a university problem. This is a problem in the, in the country more generally and, and not just in the United States these days. The idea that if you're wrong about, if I think you're wrong about X, then I don't have to listen to you on A, B, C, D, or anything else. And, and that's the Aristotle notion, uh, right? If somebody says to me, but Aristotle defended slavery, that means I don't have to take him seriously or anything else. That's a big mistake. And we can argue why that's a mistake. We can show students why that's a mistake. Why it will limit their lives if they judge people and culture that way. It will make them anti-democratic as well as anti-intellectual. I mean, I, I think that's, a, that's exactly right. But that is not a symptom of intellectual life in America. That's a symptom of the good old anti-intellectual life in America, anti-Semitic, racist life in America, that for, for you know, over the length of the, 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 this country's existence has judged people as being incapable of, of doing certain things because of the, their gender, the color of their skin. I mean, th this is a good old tradition. I wouldn't want to hang this on the professoriate. The prof professoriate has to push back against this and, and not participate in the uh, rejection of debate on the basis of predicting what the other guy is going to say. And, and, and that's hard because if somebody, somebody I, I was in Michigan, as I mentioned, and, the, and the, my host said, you know, we put you up on the Facebook page. You never did that before. I said, boy, people at, at Wesleyan think you're a fascist. 
And I said, well, as long as, good, there's no such thing as good, bad publicity. No, I didn't say that. Um, and, and, and there are people who say, well, Roth's a fascist because whatever. I mean, because there's public safety at Wesleyan. But to take that, to take that as a, a sign of student culture generally, I think is a big mistake. Even the person who says that, you, you, can prob you, you can probably have a debate with that person. You could actually probably get them to say, well, they don't, well, when I say you're a fascist, I actually don't mean you're a fascist. I just mean I think you're wrong. That's the, but, and, and the but job. It's actually the perfect example of what I'm, I'm saying, which is when, when you disagree with somebody, you just tar them with a name so incendiary that it, that it, it ends the debate. You know, I mean, if you, because most of these people don't actually know what fascism is. They don't understand, you know, it, it's not really an intellectual argument. It's a way of ending the intellectual it argument. It is, it, no doubt. But I think that name calling as a way of avoiding debate is a very old thing in the United States. I don't think that's particularly, I don't think it's more true of 20 year olds than of 60 year olds, actually. Uh, I, 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 you know, the same thing with free speech. Um, you know, people say, oh, but our students today don't have the same commitment to the First Amendment as we did when we were perfectly wonderful young people. Um, uh, at, which is, it's, it's true, I think, that, and I think the young people are right. But actually, if you do a poll, people in their 20s have much deeper commitment to free speech than people in their 60s. Um, just the, 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 the polling data. So I, I think that, um, that the, there, are, there are examples of bad behavior. For sure, and I think our job as, as, as teachers and administrators is to, is to push back against that. But I, I, what I found, the reason I wrote Safe Enough Spaces is because I found that the, the um, critique of that behavior had become um, uh, a stereotype itself, a way of not engaging with, with, with students uh, in it, where they are. Uh, and instead saying they are anti-intellectual or they're um, they have a cancel culture. They, none of those things I really want to defend, but I want to find a way to enter into dialogue with students and their culture today, as I have to with my faculty, who when I say to them at times, we need more intellectual diversity. You and I have the same view about this, but I have a department at Wesleyan that says, the right wing controls the whole country. We're going to control the department of, you know, and I, I think that's a big mistake. But I, I don't have enough power yet. I, I think <laughs> I think part of what fuels the kind of uh, uh, desperate political culture that you see on each side, where each side thinks that you know the country is 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 one step away from perdition, is that on the left, people think that the right wing has taken over the country. Look at the White House. Look at the courts. And that the, on the right, people say the left has taken over the country. Look at Hollywood, the media, and universities. So each side is looking at you know one important segment of American life. One would be kind of political life, and the other would be cultural life. Each is convinced that essentially it has been captured by the other, and that this is the you know this is the end. This if we don't make this stand, we're going to we're good. And so and that creates this very high stakes feeling that we don't need to engage with these people. We just need to defeat them. Yeah, I, and I, I do think, I think you're exactly right. That, that that's, that's, that exists on both in the university and outside the university. This notion that we need to eradicate those who disagree with us rather than uh, find out whether maybe they're right about some of the things they disagree with us about. Um, at, at, at Wesleyan, now it's probably seven or eight years ago, 
uh, I had a recommendation from a faculty committee uh, to invite a speaker uh, in our series. We have an annual lecture on free speech. And we have uh, wonderful people come and do these lectures. People wouldn't, wouldn't surprise, some might surprise you. But, but anyway, this recommendation was to bring Justice Scalia um, to Westland. And I actually thought they were baiting me because the faculty are further to the left th than I, and I thought they just wanted to see if I would accept their recommendation. And I thought, I'll accept the recommendation because he'll never come. Because um, he's very big, that was, that was another joke. Uh, he was, you know, in Michigan, they laugh like crazy at that one. Um, uh, the, the, uh, I thought he wouldn't come. Supreme Court justices are busy. He wrote back right away and said, um, Larry Lessig had a great visit to Wesleyan. I'd love to come. Larry Lessig was his clerk. I didn't know that at the time, and very far to the left. So Justice Scalia came, and I had to introduce him. That was my role in this event. Um, if I hadn't had to introduce him, I would have been protesting that he was on campus. Because <laughs> I, 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 I still think that Justice Scalia did more damage to the interpretation of the American Constitution than anyone in the last 100 years, uh, at least. Um, and, but I could be wrong, <laughs> right? I, I could be wrong. So he was going to come to campus. My friends were out there with pots and pans, banging, um, 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 and, and, um, but not disrupting the talk. He spent the whole day on campus in strong arguments with students, with faculty, and then he gave a public talk. And uh, I introduced him. I, I put a little footnote to a historian of the American Constitution with whom I know he has a disagreement. That was my little <laughs> dissonance. Uh, he winked um, at me. Um, I was very proud, uh, and, and I thought it was a great day. I still think I'm right that he did more damage, but he had a chance to make his points. The people who know a lot more about the American Constitution and its interpretation than I do got to make their points, and, and there was protest. I mean, I think the people who say we need civility only and we need, I think, I think that's overstating it. I think I was glad there was protest, but at some point, he got to give his talk. Now, I don't think that's true for every speaker. I, I think that there are some times when you, you have to deny someone a platform, but I, I think those times are exceedingly rare, and that it's very important for colleges and universities not to get baited into denying someone a platform, just to, which gives them a bigger platform in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes people forget that freedom of speech works both ways. The speaker has freedom of speech, but the protesters also have freedom of speech, and as long as they don't disrupt the speech, as long as they're standing outside saying, we disagree with this, we disagree with the idea of having him, that's freedom of speech too. And you, you, don't, you don't want to deny the, the speaker, but you don't want to deny the protesters' uh, freedom either. All right, now tell us about, you, you alluded to it, but um, the gender stuff, the trigger warnings, the, all the things that one hears about on college campuses, and you know, I'm sure most of the people in this audience uh, we kind of roll their eyes and think, these kids. Uh, so because you're old. Why? 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 Give us a way to it. Give us a way to understand it without it seeming okay. uh, silly and you know and all the things that I imagine people think. Yeah, I I I I I, I went to the you know all the hubbub around trigger warnings was was at its height. I went to a faculty meeting. And I asked my colleagues, you know, this is Wesley, and things usually start there 40 years ago, and then th the rest of the culture catches up. Um, and I said, has anyone had to give a trigger warning? And no one on, this, on the, the faculty executive committee at the time had ever given a trigger warning. Um, and then I realized that I had, although I don't use the words trigger warning because I, don't, I think it's a naive vision of how 
trauma works. But I was teaching uh, my, I teach a film and philosophy course uh, very often, and I taught this in an art school in, in, uh, in San Francisco. And I, I come out of the screening, and the student's standing there, and he, and, and he kind of grabs me, and he says, uh, I can't believe you showed that damn film. You're such an ass. And this is an art school. This happens not, not infrequently. And I was, I was taken aback. I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't know. Like, what was, he, I said it was Terrence Davies' Distant Voices Still Lives, a beautiful film, how do I describe it, um, about the director growing up in post-war Britain. And this student looks at me and says, the whole film is about, from his, the father beats the crap out of the children again and again, and his wife. Which definitely true. <laughs> and, and he said, my father used to beat the hell out of me. I thought I was going to just pass out watching the film. I, I felt terrible, actually. So I said to him, would you, I said, I'm sorry. Would, would you have preferred I didn't show the film? And he said, you're, wrong. you're such an ass. <laughs> of course not. It's a beautiful film. So I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, I don't know. And he walked away, and I thought, Okay, that's a challenge. I show in this course extremely ch difficult. I want the students to feel sick. When somebody runs out to, to, to be sick, I'm, yeah. When they cry in class, I am happy because I think, yeah, they're actually paying attention to the material. So I teach this course now, and the first day, I say, okay, tonight we're watching Night and Fog. We're watching one of the most brutal films about the uh, Holocaust that you could see with images that should turn your stomach. Uh, next week, we're going to watch a film about child abuse. The following week, we're going to watch a film about a man who's convicted uh, wrongly of murder. And following that, we're going to do a film on mass killing in Indonesia. All great films, I think. Good enough films, uh, I think. And um, it's called Monday Night with Roth. Um, um, and, and I said, listen, if this is too hard for you, and it may be, it is really hard, don't take this course. Take another course. That's a warning of sorts. And if you really like this stuff, get help immediately, I say. <laughs> and they laugh, and I take a break, and people can leave. Uh, I teach this, the virtue and vice class. We, we have a section on virtue signaling. Nobody like, gets very angry that we do that. We read the conservative authors. And we, ha we had a section. I'm very interested on how, how victims become virtuous or heroic in America in the last, let's say, 25 years. Um, it, it probably dates in the 70s. It's probably from the idea of the survivor from uh, the Holocaust. Anyway, we read, some, we read philosophical things. I said, you know, I to myself, I thought, it's just too abstract. So we read a memoir, of a, a woman's memoir of being raped in a university. And it's very powerful. Alice Siebold, it's very, very powerful, but it's painful. I have uh, 70 kids in the class. N several of them have had experience with sexual assault. So is it wrong to, why wouldn't I tell them? Listen, it's going to be hard. Week 12, some, you know, I could read the book and think, wow, the sentences are beautiful. Someone else is going to read that book, and it's going to be, they're going to have a different way of learning. They have to. And I say every year, it's going to be hard, but it's so important. So, it, But if you can't do it, just well, let's talk a few weeks before, and we'll find something else. I've had hundreds of students now in this class. And I had one student say, you know, I don't think I could do it. And I came to her a few weeks later and said, what do you want to do? And she said, I can do it. 
I think that's fantastic. I think as a teacher, you're not warning people so that they don't engage. You're giving them a path to engage, and what you're really doing is telling, I care about your reaction. I don't think you're all the same. I care about your reaction. I want you to learn from hard material. I don't want to cover it up, uh, but I also don't, I want to respect the fact that for some of you, it's a lot harder than for others because of your own life experience. But, but go on from that to the, the issue that is at the center of your book, which is safe spaces. So, you know, the, the, the uh, argument is that you, that these students today want to be sheltered from difficult material, you know, not difficult often in the sense you mean it, uh, personally traumatic or, or, or traumatic in a way that would trigger some kind of personal reaction, but politically difficult because highly disputatious or completely disagreeing with their point of view or celebrating something that they have they, they regard as evil. And so they'd rather not read it or they'd rather not talk about it. And the most famous case, just to get your, your thoughts about this in recent years, of course, has been that example uh, at Yale University, where just to remind everyone what happens is it's Halloween and a, uh, a dean sends out a, a note telling everybody, um, you know, when, when celebrating Halloween, we want you to be sensitive to the, you know, to the, uh, to the notion that you shouldn't be dressing up in ways that appropriate or demean uh, other cultures. And at that point, another dean uh, reading this gets incensed and says, look, and sends out a note saying, well, I actually think the whole point of freedom is you should be free to do whatever you want. And if you want to dress up as something silly and you're willing to bear the consequences of somebody saying something, you know, you should be allowed to do that. Anyway, this turned into a huge protest with people uh, you know, crying and weeping and on, on, on what was later YouTube videos. Um, and, the, and, the, and the argument was really about that, which is, do people have the freedom to dress up as whatever they want, um, if that's what they want to do? Or should you take the sensitivities of people who somehow would be so offended that you were to wear an, you know, an Indian uh, headdress or whatever it is? Um, how, how should we think about that? I, I think it, it, it's so context-dependent. These things are so context-dependent. I mean, um, most of us probably wouldn't go, I don't know if there are any Canadians here, but I would go to a party in blackface now. Whereas when I was a kid, I, I don't think there are any photos of me, but, but I, I think, uh, I mean, I don't think, I mean, pe people would do that. And but the fact but to that be fair, to, to just to give it to be fair to to Justin Trudeau, he was dressed yeah. as Aladdin, yeah. which I thought was kind of a missing. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, it right. does yeah, strike me as like. But at the Madison yeah. Beach Club, just to give an example, I heard this from somebody we I, I I know who has access. They they had India night and people dressed in turbans, and I think you know no one's offended because <laughs> no India. You know, if you're segregated, no one's offended. But people say, oh, I can't believe these people are offended because when I was here at, at Yale, people weren't offended when we dressed up as women because there were no women there, let's say. And that meant dressing up with huge uh, volleyballs in your, under your shirt or dressed up as a minority person. But I think a lot of this is context dependent and, and taking, the, uh, taking your neighbor's sensitivities into account doesn't seem to me to be a, a bad thing. I think it was a bad thing that the, 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 rea the reactions seemed excessive, 
Um, I heard Peter Salovey just talk about this, uh, the president of Yale just talked about this last week. He said that actually what happened in the middle was there's a fraternity party at Yale, and uh, the, the, the story was in the press that they said no black people can come into the party. And that was widely reported. So the campus was on edge. For me, the real story there, it turned out not to be true. But, but what is true is that the woman who was filmed um, and whose image was circulated all over the internet, who actually had the, who, yell, who behaved badly. She yelled at the dean, who behaved admirably, I think. He, he, he was very restrained. She screamed, she was very upset. But she received death, death, death threats for months. That's, to me, the story. Not that she lost it and he screamed and cursed at the dean and said she wanted to have a home. The real story is that from all over America, people sent her death threats because of that, which is not reported. When Frank Bruni told the story recently in the Times, he never mentioned that. So I wrote him and I said, why don't you mention that? He said, I don't want her to get death threats. That, to me, is much worse than the fact that sometimes kids at universities behave like kids. Um, and, and, but but I, I, I've, I, I do, so I think there's a way in which you can play to the, to encourage the sensitivities of students in such a way uh, as, to, as to weaken them. And that's, I think, uh, uh, John Haidt's the point, and, and, and Greg Lugano's book in the, in the Coddling of the American Mind, a book I don't like very much, but they, it has some very good things in it. And one of the good things it has, to, to, to my mind, is that part of what we do as teachers is to build resilience, what we should do. Um, and one of the reasons we need intellectual diversity is so that, so that professors can help build resilience with students. Because it, it, many people won't do it on their own. And if they could do it on their own, they probably shouldn't pay all that money to go to a school. I mean, that's our job as teachers to, to help them to help them build resilience. And and I, I think, I mean, I, we hired the military um, veterans to teach courses. We have a, a, a Colonel Cassidy who's teaching um, in Erica's department in political science. Uh, and his first year, um, he was invited to the lefties uh, professor's course uh, uh, at, at on Islamophobia. And he told me the story. He said, uh, uh, he got to the class, and everybody was very suspicious of him. He just came back from Afghanistan, just retired. He has a PhD, and you know, he's a very interesting intellectual, but he's just come out of the service. And they said, well, we're glad you're here, because last week we just were looking at the Abu Ghraib photographs and talking about torture that American soldiers did to, and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And all the students were like, yeah. He said, well, I'm really glad I'm here, too, because I actually was an interrogator. And he said the whole class moved, like, they all took two steps back. Simon says, they're all like, ah, you know. And then he taught the class for 90 minutes and talked about what his perspective on this was ethically, politically, professionally. And at the end of the class, people asked questions. They wanted to talk more. And they, there would have been a way to encourage those students to not to, to, you know, to close up their ears. But there is also a way of getting those students to listen, not to agree that Colonel Cassidy is right about everything, but to listen to a point of view they would never hear elsewhere. And that's what you want at college. That's what we got, right? You, uh, Fareed wrote a brilliant book on liberal education. I mean, he loves uh, liberal arts education. And one of the things you talk about in that book uh, is the, the ways in which the whole world gets so much bigger and richer and more interesting. And that's our task on a college campus, not either to complain about students, but nor to just placate them so they become as narrow as they were when they got there. We need to 
help, we say we want them to transform, but that means to take into consideration ideas and art and, 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 and cultures that they never would encounter elsewhere. How much of this is part of a phenomenon that um, I sometimes wonder about, um, which is you have at college campuses, and that young woman in that video was a minority student. You have now many, many more people who come from uh, difficult circumstances, disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, people of color, all that, and they come into these places and they feel in some way out of place. I don't know why this never happened to me, but I was a you know a scholarship kid from India, plumped in the middle of Yale. I felt totally at home. But I, 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 guess, I guess this is not a typical reaction. Um, and, you know, and to be fair, I came from a very good middle-class family, educated, you know, so there, even though it seemed like there was a cultural barrier, I had built up a lot of intellectual and social capital that would allow me to handle a, a situation like that. A lot of people haven't. And how much of this is sort of like, it's like, it's almost a dialogue between the deaf and the dumb where these new entrants are saying, we're feeling very ill at ease here and we need something that makes us more comfortable. And that is then translated into, don't disagree with me, don't, yeah, yeah. don't, don't bring Ann Coulter to, to speak at my, at my school. And then people saying, you're anti-intellectual, you don't really, you know. Does that feel like there's something there? Absolutely. So there's been a shift, and uh, there's the first part of Safe Enough Spaces, there's a shift from talking about just getting more numbers of underrepresented groups to having people feel included. So when, when I started as president of Wesleyan in 2007, uh, we had an office of diversity. And now we have an office of equity and inclusion. Because the students said to us, you know why you, we, you, just brought, you just brought us to Wesleyan so we have more people of color on the website. You just want to parade us around until you feel better, uh, your liberal conscience feels better, because we don't really feel included. And I, I, I had some sympathy with that because I, I was a student at Wesleyan and I started in 1975. You know, I had never met anyone who'd gone to a private school who hadn't been thrown out of high, uh, public school, you know. And, and, and so I met, <laughs> no, I, I just didn't know anybody. I mean, you know, I, saw, I, I met these kids. They said they went to, I don't know, say Exeter. And I was like, oh, wow, you must have done something really bad. They sent you all the way uh, up there. <laughs> and and, and I, I, it just was so foreign to me. So my reaction was to have a big chip on my shoulders, like, I'm going to show you you're not as smart as you think. But no, I went to a crappy school, uh, high school, so I had a lot of work to do to, to get that chip off my, my shoulder. Students today sometimes expect and sometimes get um, administrators um, to, to, to say to them, you know, you really don't fit in. We have to help you fit in more because you don't fit in. Rather than, as I would prefer, to have as our teaching is to have students realize there's so much stuff here you can take. There's so many resources at this university that you can take. Because rich people know how to take stuff, right? I mean, they, rich kids, they know how to take stuff. They do it all the time. That's what they're good at. But poor kids, they often think, well, that must not be for me. And um, uh, we, we heard, a, my, my wife Kyrie's here in the front, teachers at Wesleyan, we heard a graduation speaker at, at uh, Pomona College, where our daughter went this last year. This kid said he was a low-income kid from North Carolina. He had nothing. He didn't know where Pomona was. He just got a scholarship. He was in California. It seemed like a good deal. 
and then the first year he was lost as can be, didn't know anything. And then he realized he wanted to learn Arabic. They sent him to North Africa. He wanted to do something else. They got him an internship. And then he said, what did I get from Pomona? I realize now what a $2 billion endowment gets you. And everybody laughed because he said, as a low-income kid, I could take resources. He said, I'm graduating debt-free, and I have a job. African-American kid from North Carolina, I think it was, and he said he was selling watermelons on the side of the road with his sister, and there she is in the audience. His mother's crying. We're crying. I'm going to cry. It was, and did he need to feel included? He needed to feel included enough to take advantage of the institution. And that's what I want our students to say, I could take advantage of Wesleyan. I can use it to get a job. I can use it to learn a language. I can use it to go to museums. I can use it. And what we have to do, I think, is to say, um, not that you're included, but you have the right to take as much as you can from this education while you're here and then turn it into something when you leave. And you know, that's a, the, 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 my book on liberal education beyond the university. Said, it's not about how included you feel at the school that matters how much fun you have in school matters. What matters is what you take with you when you leave and what you're going to do with it. And what I love to see at Wesleyan are these kids who come, we have these Questbridge scholars who come with nothing. They have, you know, I had a kid this year who had, he, he didn't have shoes. You know, he had like the sandals on his feet. So we have to go buy him stuff. But then we have to teach him, you can actually go get things. Because this is a place that wants you to use us so that you can have a, a bigger, richer, more fulfilling life and make a contribution to other people. All right, um, I'm going to open it up now. Um, my only rule is you cannot ask Michael how to get your kid or grandkid into Wesleyan. <laughs> I, will give, I will give you the answer to that. Having served on a university board, if you want to get a child into, into college, um, have a daughter, move to Arkansas, have her be interested in science, and have her play some exotic sport uh, like like fencing, and I think that's that's yeah. <laughs> um, all right, um, so. That's a great question. So I, I, I think um, that universities should enforce their disciplinary code. So Wesleyan, um, uh, every, I guess I can just tell you, it's not a secret. Uh, on, in the spring, we have a rival day when the students who've been accepted come, and now they're in the driver's seat. They can choose the college they want to go to, you know. And so we have events for that, and, and I give speeches. Every year now, when I give the speech, uh, there's a protest. There has to be, they have to, there has to be one. Um, and, it's a, and it's smart. It's a good time to leverage. The, uh, so our rules are they can protest, but they can't stop me from speaking. And, um, and once or twice, they have stopped me from speaking. And then there are disciplinary consequences. 
and, and Wesley, and it, you know, the, you ratchet it up. There's a, um, there's, there's, there's a point system, and if you have more than X number of points, you're suspended. So I, I think schools that don't enforce that are, are undermining their own uh, legitimacy. However, I do think boisterous protest um, is uh, also protected by free speech, and that civility. Sometimes I just think sometimes it sounds like the, it sounds like a middle class um, uh, dining room behavior. And and you know, uh, the, uh, if you want free speech, you have to also have political theater, and you have to have to have incivility. And it c doesn't only come from students; it can come from other kinds of uh, of of or from leftist students. It comes from various sectors. I had a group of students who asked me to to um, condemn a, con a conservative group that, that was using a template from National Conservative Organization called, it was called the Affirmative Action Bake Sale. And this was a national template that our, some students at Wesleyan, conservative students used. And it, you, you, you set up a cupcake stand and you sell the cupcakes. If you're black, it's, it's uh, 25 cents. If you're white, it's a dollar. It's, you know, and, and, and it's meant to, as a critique of affirmative action. So a group of African-American students came to see me and said, this is racist. I actually think it is racist. Um, and, um, and I should stop it. I said, well, you know, I think it's racist. They don't think it's racist. There were students of color involved on the other side, too, actually. And I said, you should go and argue with them. They said, well, we want you to condemn it. I said, well, I don't, I don't agree with it, but I'm not going to say that publicly because they're students. They're, it's political theater. And, and it, but it wasn't civil, actually. It was meant to be nasty. The apartheid wall at Wesleyan is not civil. It, when it goes up, I don't like it. It's meant to make me annoyed. It annoys me. But, you know, I think it's, they have the right to do that. They don't have the right to do the heckler's veto. Um, and if they do that, uh, they should be punished according to the rules of the school. You know, each school has its own. Well, I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, I think we have a calibrated system. You know, and I, it, it is true that I mean, I, I have a view that if you, it's a Machiavelli thing. If you just shoot a couple of people, everybody gets in line. Uh, it doesn't even have to be the right people. But that view does not prevail. That doesn't. That view hasn't prevailed at Wesleyan. Um, there was. I'll let you call, ma'am, at the back there. Yeah. I hear a butt coming. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it would probably be different at different schools at Yale. May have a different thing than, than Wesleyan is pretty small. So we have 3,000 undergraduates. They come to me. <laughs> they come to the house. No, they, they, they come, they go to, uh, they, we have also class deans. I mean, most universities are lousy with administrators now. It's, I mean, that is, uh, there were too, too many of us. Um, uh, and so it's finding an advisor, an academic advisor, if that's the issue, or an RA, if it's a residential, and it's another student. Um, and then there are usually people in the student life office who can, who can be helpful? Um, I, I think it's it's really important for students to know they should have people to talk to about what concerns them, in a way that's sympathetic, but not just sympathetic. You know, that will act, that will say, yeah, I'm listening to you, but actually, I'm I don't agree with you, and I'm I'm not going to do what you've asked me to, even though you've asked me ten times. Um, and so I, I so I think that at, at many universities, 
try very hard to provide real good direction for people to take their complaints in, in the proper way. And, but I, I would, I'm just reading this book. Uh, I think it's called it's something like Education Among the White People. or so. it's, a, it's a fairly recent book. And she talks about being a first-generation student at Cornell from a, a Latinx family. And she said she didn't understand any of this stuff. Even though Cornell was like putting out these messages, they were lost on her and her family because they were looking in the wrong direction. Now she knows. But so I, so I think sometimes students are more, and their families are more puzzled by the culture of academia than we who've been part of it realize. My parents didn't go to college. I mean, they, were, they thought the whole thing was kind of crazy. Um, uh, and, and so it takes a while for, for some people to find the appropriate person to talk with. Um, sir at the back there. Not, not that I know of. I mean, I, it, 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 it depends on your politics, what the model is, right? Um, uh, there are people who point to the free speech movement at Berkeley, but uh, in Berkeley in the late, mid -late, and late 1960s, they, they would not tolerate ROTC on campus. They wouldn't tolerate you know, certain speakers on campus. When I was at Wesleyan in the 70s, there's no way we could have had cohorts of military veterans on full scholarships at Wesleyan like we do now. I mean, that, the, st we would, the students would have shut it down. Um, I think free, what has happened with free speech in the last 25 years, it is that in the courts is that it has become uh, framed with the libertarian perspective that um, has, people have said, weaponized free speech so that almost everything one does can be coded as speech and therefore be protected. In Connecticut, there is a lawsuit in, right now, guys making guns on a laser printer without serial numbers, and he just said, well, it's my art, pro it's, 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 it's a working gun, but he says it's my freedom of speech. Um, and I, I think that um, uh, the kind of, uh, what I call for in the book is uh, uh, respecting freedom of speech, but being vigilant about protecting especially vulnerable populations from intimidation and harassment, not from disagreement. I mean, I use this phrase, safe enough spaces, as a title, it's kind of a joke, because, you know, the, the, in this crowd, you probably know, the psychoanalysts in the 50s, right, they had the good enough mother, right, the, the mother who didn't make you psychotic. Um, and um, and uh, it's supposed to, they became the good enough parent because fathers didn't parent in the 50s, but in the 60s, it became the good enough parent, a parent that wouldn't make you crazy. Because if you try too hard to have perfect free speech or perfect children, you're going to make them crazy. And if you said, go learn the laws of physics, go and play in Lexington Avenue with a blindfold, that's not going to work so well either. So I, I think that free speech works really well when you have intellectual diversity and you have concern that vulnerable people are not victimized by people who have megaphones and radio stations and newspapers um, and the ability to do advertising. Erica's group, the Wesleyan Media Project, just published this results of, you know, the two billionaires have accounted for a huge percentage of political advertising because they have freedom of speech. But their freedom of speech actually is different than mine <laughs> because they have power. And so I think finding a balance between um, uh, intellectual diversity and, uh, and, and protection from abuse, uh, that's my goal. I'm yeah, I, I would just add to, to that. You know, it's a, it, it, I think in general, 
there's never been a golden age. You know what I mean? That whenever one looks, whenever you hear these kind of things, if you then look carefully, you discover that there never really was a golden age. So when people look back and, you know, older people then, well, what are you talking about? The 50s when, you know, you had McCarthyism, you had the House on American Activities Committee, you had people blacklisted because of, what their, of their views, and, th you know, that was freedom of speech. And I think Michael's point is one most people don't recognize. On the left, people are aware that the Second Amendment has been, over the last 30 years, read in a more and more absolutist way. Um, but it actually mirrors a similar movement with the First Amendment. Both amendments in the 1950s uh, were regarded as ones in which the government had lots of leeway to regulate. Um, think about all the stuff that was done in the 50s regarding anti-communism. And before, you can go back to the Alien and Sedition Acts. The government always regulated free speech. In the, in the 60s, there began to be this purist libertarian interpretation of the First Amendment, which then produced a reaction among conservatives saying, well, if you're going to have a libertarian inter interpretation of the First Amendment, why shouldn't we have a similar purist interpretation of the Second Amendment? And that is why th there's a wonderful book on this by Akhil Reed Amar at Yale. Um, so, th you know, th th there, whenever you look back, it turns out the period you're looking at that you thought of as being so civil or whatever it was. I mean, I, when I was in college, you know, to your point of incivility, there were massive protests about apartheid. There were shanties. There were huge protests about the uh, people now forget the, the aid to the Nicaraguan Contras on both sides. There were these huge clashes that would take place. Um, you know, and most of the time the speaker was allowed to speak, but not always. So. I think, and you, you, I'd like you to speak to this too, because um, I'm sure you see this in the world of journalism. Uh, but I, I do think that um, the notion that um, we don't have uh, agreed upon sources of, of, of facts is, is, is ab absolutely crucial. Uh, uh, Stephen Shapin, a great historian of science, written recently about this idea that we need more science because science will give us more facts. He said, no, actually, he doesn't think we need more science. Is that that, you know, you're never going to, he says, I'm never going to know enough about climate science to make an intelligent scientific judgment. And this is a guy who's written on history of science his whole career. He's got a background in molecular biology, but he doesn't have a background in other things. But he knows that when most of the scientists um, at the key uh, scientific institutes have the same uh, uh, conclusions, that he has faith in them. And if you find some the, the Institute of Cl Climate Science in, uh, I don't know, in West Texas that has six guys working on it, or the anti-vaccination uh, uh, group in Williamsburg, you, you, you may not have the same confidence in them as, in, as you have in the National Institute of Health. And he's, what Shapin argues, and I think he's absolutely right about this, is that we have, a, we have a crisis of legitimacy, that people don't believe in the sources of uh, knowledge authority as they had before. And... And, and various groups have exploited this on the left and the right. Because if there's no agreed upon uh, uh, sources of, of, of knowledge authority, then it's very, very hard to have a reasonable debate. 
I guess I would think, I think it's a slightly more circumscribed problem, which is it largely operates in the political realm. I don't think in America today, when somebody, you know, at McKinsey is trying to figure out what to do with a company, they, they consult, a, you know, a, their spiritual guide, or, or when you're deciding whether you're, whether you're ill or not, you don't go to the doctor, you, you know, you go to a witch doctor or something like that. I think that what you're describing, which is very real, is that what has happened is people's political affili affiliations have become irrational or pre-rational. They've become tribal. Uh, essentially based on their identity rather than any policy program. And that in that context, they essentially discount any facts that don't allow them to support their team. It's, it's almost more like politics has become sports. It's an atavistic, you know, and, and, and then, you know, what you have is that the facts are simply being manipulated. And here the social psychological research is terribly depressing, which is smarter people are actually worse about this. They are more likely to discount and to and to maneuver around inconvenient facts than than other people, and the problem is it's very effective in this political environment. So, you know, you, yesterday on the Super Bowl uh, in, in the, the pre-game interview, Trump says, "You know, the thing about Mike Bloomberg is, you know, he's now just demanding this box that will allow him to stand on the you know on the Democratic podium. Why should he get a box? Why should other people not get a box? I mean, I get that he's short, but." Why does he need a box? This seems special treatment. Why does he get... So maybe I'm saying this because Mike Bloomberg is 5'8", as am I. Um, Mike Bloomberg is not actually short. I think four of the candidates are the same height as he is. But more importantly, of course, this has none of this ever happened. Right? Bloomberg is not eligible to be in the debates because he doesn't take money publicly, which is one of the requirements of the... So, they never even got to the point where there could have been a conversation about whether or not he needed a box. <laughs> Needless to say, having you know run three mayoral campaigns, he's aware that you can sit a stand on a podium at B, uh, you know at five eight without ne needing a box. But what Trump does is it's brilliant because he's now everyone is thinking about Mike Bloomberg short, right? It's this kind of word association which now is is stuck with him like crooked Hillary or whatever it is. Now, that's the problem, which is that it is the manipulation uh, of, of people's, you know, emotionally uh, in, a, in a context of tribal politics. And I think that the, the problem is, the, is really that tribal politics. That it's not that people are not aware. I don't think we have become an, an anti-rational or anti-truth culture. It's just that we have become so tribal politically. We want our side to win. And we're not going to hear anything that is inconvenient on the other side. And by the way, it probably operates on both sides. We're just more, this is part of our bias that we don't see it as much on our side as we do on the other side. Um, and, and how you solve that, I think, is a kind of a much deeper problem than, than you know. Well, and I think what it does is it, uh, it actually, the media does play into this because in, in a context in which uh, politics has become more and more about these tribal loyalties, you know that there's more energy in providing people with facts that they're going to like and agree with and uh, interpretations that they're going to like and agree with. I mean, I read the New York Times, and I'm often struck by how the news analysis is get, it gets more and more 
you know, tinged with kind of anti-Trump ideology rather than more straight news reporting or, or analysis. But I understand why it's happening. It's what people want, right? It's that's that's part of what's going on in television as well. I mean, if you will w watch CNN, there, if you if you detect that it has drifted more and more. Part of that is just commercial. There is an energy to that side, and there isn't an energy to saying, no, I'm just going to tell you what happened, and you make your own decision. It turns out people don't want to make their own decision. They don't want to watch TV news. They want to go to church. They want to hear the catechism. And, you know, the people who give them the catechism are the ones who get energy. And, and that's uh, parallel to what we're talking about with intellectual diversity on our campus. It's easier to be a popular teacher by appealing to the prejudices of your students and flattering their identity. Because one of the points I think you made when you read about this recently is that the allegiance is not based on ideology as much as it is on identity. And it's, and it is, it's tempting for the professor to, to be wanting to be a good, like, well-liked professor, and it's tempting for the students. So you have this uh, seemingly virtuous circle which is, becomes an echo chamber that's very dangerous. Well, yeah, it's really, uh, the question is, uh, are the professors um, as good as I am? <laughs> no. uh, in other words, are the pr are professors trying to give different sides of the story? I, I actually, let, I don't think my students should know whether I like Aquinas more than Rousseau or Marx more than, than uh, Virginia Woolf until the last week, and I, I give them a little hint about where, where, where my views are. But I, I, I try to convince them that that shouldn't matter. And I think a lot of professors, a lot of professors do exactly this. And they're not teaching only the things they agree with. They're teaching a range of material. I mean, uh, uh, because it, you teach uh, uh, things uh, from the ancient world to the contemporary world. And, and these things are still being taught all over the country. Um, and, and so uh, I, I, I do think that it's, um, it's really important for, for professors to look for their own biases. Uh, and, and one of the reasons I, I, you know, to call for this affirmative action program for conservatives, it's not for the 10 speakers we'll have or the two or three extra professors we have who are conservative. It's to create a conversation so that people start thinking, gee, maybe my course is not as open-ended as I thought. Because I thought my course 10 years ago was pretty open-ended. And then I had a guy on the on Westland board in Tucker Anderson, who's uh, in the board of the Cato Institute, and he kept pointing out to me all the ways in which these prejudices were operating. I don't agree with his politics. We disagree just as much as we did before. But, but I saw, gee, you know, when I teach a course on intellectual history, I tend to favor a certain group of thinkers. And I maybe give, I should give different perspectives on those thinkers. And when I got, got a group of students together at Wesleyan who were all conservative or religious uh, 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 students, they, uh, they asked them how they were doing in class, whether they felt picked on by professors. The religious students, like the athletes actually, felt condescended to uh, in many of their classes. Uh, when I asked a very uh, right-wing student who was a libertarian right-wing student, I said, do you think your professors are, are prejudiced against you? And he looked at me and said, they find me fascinating. <laughs> he said, they love to debate with me. And so I think that um, creating a conversation about whether these prejudices are there um, is a very important step to uh, dissolving those prejudices.
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, and I think, um, you know, I spent most of my career at small places, so it's easier. I think at, at large universities, it's, it's a different kind of challenge. Many of those large universities have smaller units within them, and, and that, makes, that, that, that facilitates this. Uh, but I, I think America uh, in the last 20 years has become a, a much more segregated uh, place, not just by race, but uh, by uh, in income. And inequality is, is, is so rampant off campus. But on campus, you might have a, a student who's there, a Questbird student who has no resources at all, would be homeless if not for the university, living with someone whose uh, parent's name is on the building. Um, and, and that's not going to happen very often when they leave. Our job is to make sure they don't just, aren't just side by side, that there are things that they do together that get them to talk to each other and to create a sense of connectivity. And, um, that's th and, and what can we do in that regard? We have to tread lightly because, you know, these are not just Wesleyan students, but all undergraduates. The last thing they want is to have Grandpa Mike telling them, you know, I'm having a big party at my house and I'm going to have everybody talk to each other. It's not going to work, right? Um, but you create with uh, uh, people closer to their own experience possibilities for sharing life experiences and ideologies and aspirations that they wouldn't share uh, elsewhere. And, and where does that happen? It happens on sports teams at small colleges where people have to play together. It happens in intramural sports. It happens in theater and music all the time at a place like Wesleyan where every night there's a show the students are putting on, right? And I've gone through this whole evening and I haven't used the words Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, and I will be fined if I, now I won't be. Uh, you know, because you know, he, he, when you work in a, a student theater, you get to work with people from all different fields. And I think that experience of discovering people you wouldn't discover elsewhere, um, uh, making connections to people you wouldn't meet elsewhere, uh, is one of the ways that a liberal education becomes so vital for the rest of your life. I, I think I have a slightly um, uh, darker view or more tragic view of what, ha what has happened on college campuses in this regard, um, which is I do think if you look at that Yale incident, I was on the board of Yale, so I know a little bit about uh, what happens, and the students then come up and demand um, that you know the the university should do something about all this, and so what does the university do? Which is what universities always do in these situations. Uh, most administrators are not as as brave as as Michael. Um, they say we'll give more money to Latin American studies and Latin American house and and African American house, which of course pulls the campus further and further apart because already you have too much, in my opinion, retreating to kind of these segregated ex spaces that are ethnically defined or racially defined or national origin defined, it comes out of a good place. It comes out of a place where people came to places like Yale and felt like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm ill at ease, I need a place to go, and so there you're gonna create a foreign student's house. And uh, Hillel started as that, you know, the, the, for Jewish students. The problem is it has now fractured campuses and it reinforces every time there's a protest the answer is to do more of it. And I would think that the thing to do would be to create an integration fund rather than a, se a segregation fund, you know, and to say, we're going to, it's fine to have all these houses, but we're going to have, and, you know, maybe a certain amount of, I don't know, coercion, or you can use funds as an incentive to say, we're going to have these groups meet with each other and have dinners together and have, you know, uh, mixers together. Do things that force some kind of mixture because when you go to a college campus today, it is striking when you go into the dining hall how segregated it is. You know, 
it's segregated by race, and then if you drill down a little bit more, you'll find it segregated in, in other ways. And surely there has to be some way that universities can do something, because what strikes me, Michael, is that it, this is the story of America today. You know, Everyone is, is drifting apart and drifting into these hermetically sealed bubbles where there are very few forces that try to ask, well, how do you unify them? That's one of the reasons I've come out in favor of national service. Because I think whenever you talk to people who are in the army or in the Peace Corps, the, you know, the more important thing is not what it did for Africans, it's what it did for the people who were there, sharing a common experience. You, know, I mean, you look at John F. Kennedy's PT boat. The people on that boat were an electrician, a plumber, a house painter, you know, a, a, a writer, and John, and John F. Kennedy. What, when does that experience happen again? And is there something one can do to try to make that happen again? So I, I want to give you the last word, but I want to say one thing to all the people who are worried listening to this very eloquent young man. Uh, you know, don't worry so much. They're, 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 they're 19 and 20-year-old kids. You know, they're all crazy. You were crazy at that time. They have weird passions. They get over them, you know. I mean, for all that you hear about, just remember, one third of the class is interviewing at McKinsey, and the other third is interviewing at Goldman Sachs. You know, uh, that's Yale. Um, <laughs> uh, but but um, no, that's, I I should say that the, the because at, at Mc, at the, I think the head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs is a Wesleyan alum, and the CFO of McKinsey is a Wesleyan alum. But he was a studio art major, so. Um, uh, I do think that uh, there's a lot we can do at colleges and universities to, to actually not just have intellectual diversity as numbers, but to have the kind of interactions that Fareed is talking about. Uh, for the same reasons the New York Times wants to play to your prejudices or Fox News wants to play to your prejudices, universities can find themselves dr doing that too. If, we, if what we really ask our students is, are you happy here? If we ask them, you're spending a lot of money, are you feeling included? Are you feeling satisfied? I, to me, these are the wrong questions. I tell the students every fall, they're so sick of it. I say, I don't care if you have a good time. You're 19, you should have a good time or not, whatever. I care in four years that when you leave here, you have taken so much stuff from Wesleyan that it's gonna inform the rest of your lives. Are you friendships? And they do make friendships across uh, uh, ethnic groups and e economic uh, barriers. It, it's, don't be fooled by the cosmetics of the lunchroom, and because you, you hear stories of this all the time, of 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 kids, disco families discovering people from all over the world that they otherwise wouldn't wouldn't have met. Um, and what what's educative about this is that they can find a way to not just encounter difference, but to to think about how difference can inform their own lives, how they can continue to seek out a diversity of ideas after they leave the college campus, if they go to work for uh, McKinsey or Goldman Sachs, or if they, they go to work for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or they, they, they go to work uh, in a, um, a low-income school in, in uh, central Brooklyn, but they continue to try to learn and not try to just find their tribe. I can't, because one last thing. I just came from a memorial service right before this for Gilbert Parker, who was uh, an agent uh, at, on Broadway for a long, long time. And it was so moving. A guy got up there who met um, uh, Parker, they call him, um, uh, uh, in, in 1943, I think you said, 43, 43, 44, on campus. And he said, he, he said there were four friends. 
They, and, and he said they, rea they realized eventually they liked music. They, liked, they didn't like sports. He wanted, they liked language. And that they finally realized they were all gay. They all had girlfriends just in case somebody could find out. But they were all gay. This guy, was, they were friends for 72 years. He was, the man was 92, 92 years old. He was talking at the service today. And so was, were they tribal? No, they weren't tribal. They couldn't. No, they knew everybody. Everybody loved them. They were out there making their lives richer and then expressing themselves in ways that astonished the crowds, astonished their friends. They gave back to their community. But they also had these four musketeers who gave each other comfort and solidarity and had certain experiences in common. You can have your good enough friends, safe enough spaces, your Hillels and your ex-houses, as long as you don't stay there. And I think we at universities, as teachers and administrators, can design the university so that you can go and have those deep connections, and they'll go out in the world, be more powerful, learn more, and contribute more to the world around you.